consistent practice of meditation over time, right? So just like if you're playing the piano over and over and practicing over time, that will strengthen and support brain networks involved with playing music. So in the same vein, practicing meditation or mindfulness, whatever it is, over time can make the brain and then us more efficient regulators. Hello, this podcast is sponsored by aboutmeditation.com and our free How to Meditate mini course. Learn meditation in five easy lessons at aboutmeditation.com. Welcome to the One Mind Podcast from aboutmeditation.com. My name's Morgan Dix, and I'm your host. On One Mind, we explore different angles on meditation, mindfulness, and health. We interview experts and everyday practitioners to bring you the stories, the science, and the exploration that will help you understand why this ancient practice is more relevant and important today than ever before. Hi everyone, today I'm very excited to share a fascinating interview with Dr. Jennifer Wolken. But before we start, if you're a regular listener to the podcast and you like what you hear, can you let me know? Head on over to iTunes and leave me a rating and a review. Okay, back to today's show. So I actually met Jen on Twitter not that long ago. She's a fan of the podcast and we got to talking and after learning more about her work, I thought it'd be great to have her on the show. She's super impressive. So we were chatting and I just hit the record button. You'll notice that this interview kind of picks up mid-conversation and we covered a lot of territory, and I think you're going to find it useful and, like me, fascinating. The beginning of the show is perhaps a little more technical and scientific. So if you're, if you're someone who gets a little overwhelmed by the science end of things, just hang in there. I encourage you to stick with it because we dive into some really fascinating topics through the whole show, but later in the show, we cover things like how meditation and letting go can really help you release deep emotional pain, conditioning, trauma, and limiting and sometimes unhealthy attachments, all paving the way to really enable you to thrive in your life. And for me, I loved talking with Jen Because as a scientist and as a passionate meditation practitioner, she straddles this super interesting crossroads where mindfulness, psychology, and scientific research all intersect. So also, at the end of this show, I'm going to be telling you about the guest for next week, who I'm very excited about. So stay tuned for that. And okay, Let's jump into this great interview with Dr. Jennifer Wolken. Can you tell me about how you got into brain science and then like pivoting to these more mindfulness-based interest? And yeah, I'd love to hear more about it all. I think I knew maybe subconsciously I'd have a long and windy history with psychology. In college, I decided to take psychology because all my friends were doing it. And I fell in love with chapter number two, which is brain and behavior. Mm. And so as a freshman, from that moment on, I was just was hooked. So I didn't have any idea that I wanted to be a psychologist when I grew up. And I didn't really know all that much about it. But when I kind of had the context of the brain, it was just so inspiring. Mm, um, right. And then I you know, worked in a basic science lab and couldn't do that again, but feel very fortunate and blessed to have done that. And, and then I decided to do a psychology program with a health focus. So it was a clinical psychology PhD with a health psychology focus. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, stayed with my passion for the brain by doing a lot of neuropsych externships and internships. And then finally, this two year postdoc that I told you about. Um, and I think that's where I really got into mindfulness was on my postdoc. So fairly recently, so I would say like five to seven years ago, I wasn't opposed. I had done yoga, heard the terms, but it wasn't really on my radar. 
it was the hardest academic thing and, you know, kind of difficult personally and professionally, the postdoc. It was such an honor and a blessing to be doing it, but it was so tough. It pushed me to my limits in so many ways. What what exactly was the postdoc? For people who are listening, what exactly is a postdoc and what specifically were you studying and focusing on? Sure. So it was a neuropsychology postdoc, two-year postdoc after the PhD. And it was at uh, Massachusetts Mental Health Center mm-hmm. and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, all affiliated with Harvard Medical School. That's what you, right, exactly. Now I remember. Yeah, exactly. And we had talked about your wife working at, at the Osher Institute. I actually did some work there. Nice. Post, post, postdoc, I did a year of do, being um, the neuropsychologist on this mindfulness-based stress reduction and cognitive impairment protocol. Yeah, um, well, fantastic. Yeah, so <laughs> it was life-changing, to say the least. I believe it. Just from my own personal self, you know, I had had pain, chronic pain, years before, started, that started years before, that really came to the forefront during postdoc for probably so many reasons. And my own mindfulness practice was just kind of a godsend. Right. And I almost couldn't believe it, right? Something so simple can make such a change is such a, as they say, game changer. And yeah. I decided that's it. I'm not only personally invested, but this can help me help other people. Wow. Well, that's, that is a real gift when your per- personal and professional merge like that. Gosh, it's, it's such a blessing. It was such a aha moment, as they say, a gradual aha moment. <laughs> right. So I am always interested, like, what is it in someone's life that drives them to seek out meditation and mindfulness or, or like what are the circumstances in life that force the issue? And so for you, it sounds like very explicitly it was pain that got you interested in this, but you also happened to be in a context where as you were learning about this to help yourself, it dovetailed with your professional interest. Is, is that right? Exactly. And I think like timing is, is so much of how things come to fruition. Like I said, I had experienced the pain before through many years of graduate training and, you know, during my doctorate. And it just was exacerbated for whatever reason Mm -hmm. during my postdoc for probably many reasons. I, you know, I was pushed in a way I had never been pushed before. I'd like to think I was older, so maybe a little wiser, (laughs) you know, and able to kind of take a step back and understand that, all right, it's time. You know, I think what happened actually is I had an acute flare up. So right, chronic pain is it's so tough because it's like, okay, it's just there all the time. It's dull. You know, you want to push through it, sometimes avoid it. But then once you have this acute flare up and the sirens are going and your body's saying, okay, something's not right. Right. I could no longer not listen to that. The acute flare up noise in my body, my mind, my brain, whatever. Listening to that, I think, was how I started to help myself. And then I realized, gosh, I'm in this position where I can utilize this. But it was just so natural. It felt so natural. It was almost, it wasn't even a conscious decision. It just kind of happened naturally where the work that I was doing with my body, brain, mind would just translate in how I would interact with patients. Mm-hmm. I have a question about specifically, because you you referred to this, right, when you started talking about the pain. You experienced your mindfulness or meditation practice, and I want to come back and ask you what that practice is, stroke was, but you said that it relieved pain for you. Number one, is that right? And number two, can you kind of take us in there and like what actually happened when you were practicing that meditation and how did that affect your pain? Yeah, sure. Um, again, everything is such a process. And yeah, you know, I wouldn't yeah. say it's, there's, it's not like taking a pill, right? It just doesn't work that way. Even mm-hmm. though at first you'd like to think that. And so the way pain works is that there's this real pain is real, of course, but there's this real subjective experience and your mind can affect how your brain modulates or doesn't modulate pain. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a panacea, but it was a way for me to regulate my own stress in response to the pain. Pain yes. is a stressor, and then yes. <laughs> exactly. So pain just is such a stressor. So my body was in fight or flight all the time, 
And I realized that at least from that part, I could have quote unquote, I don't necessarily like this word in general, but I could control. There's so much about pain that I can't control that whatever I could, I want to. Right. So again, I, I use control loosely. So I would meditate. And what was for me most paramount was compassion. That was just for me, the awareness of the pain. Yeah. And then not judging it. I'd be so hard on myself. You're always in pain. What's wrong with you? Something's wrong with you. Um, you can't do this. Why did he didn't choose you to do this postdoc? <laughs> that running narrative, that negative self-talk. Yeah. That's, I think, where it helped me at first was to change my narrative by having more compassion. It's okay. Whatever you're experiencing is is okay. And yeah. part of the narrative was that stigma, just to be honest, with women in pain. And it was almost the pain was paramount, but it was almost worse because I felt like I had to keep it inside and I couldn't be honest about it. Right. Because people hear pain and they think, okay, you're depressed, you know, you're anxious. Unfortunately, that's still a little bit of the zeitgeist, which is also what pulled me into women's health. Mm -hmm. um, pain is a very real experience. Sure, so many subjective elements that can exacerbate, et cetera, whatever. But yeah. uh, that stigma, taking a step back from that, stop stigmatizing myself, <laughs> I think was the most profound for me. And mm -hmm. then later on with practice, just the relaxation itself would help the pain. My muscles would contract less. <laughs> also just being exposed to the pain. There's so, so many ways. What's wonderful about mindfulness, I think, which is primarily the meditation that I practice, is that there's so many avenues to wellness. Mm -hmm. it can, there's so many, quote, mechanisms of action. So whether it's the helping your body become more relaxed, getting it back into a, a parasympathetic state, mm -hmm. whether it's via taking a step back and decentering and being more compassionate with yourself, whether it's exposing yourself to the pain, just being able to sit with negative sensations and feelings yeah. and thoughts. Yes. Right? So many avenues. <laughs> no, that's so important. Can you define for everyone this word parasympathetic response? Because it, it's so important for I think people to understand the immense physiological benefits of the relaxation response and what it can do. Of course. I'd love to. We have a sympathetic and a parasympathetic nervous system. And the sympathetic is literally akin to our fight or flight. That's what happens, right? So your body goes into this mode where it's your muscles start to contract, um, your pupils dilate, vessels constrict, mm. you know, so that you can be ready to flee or to fight. And that's okay. It's a very evolutionary stance. Yeah. But way back when, when there were people use this example, saber-toothed tiger is right in front of us. Yeah, but, yeah. And, you know, our cortisol levels go up, neuroepinephrine goes up. But I think in this day and age, we literally douse ourselves in these chemicals, these neurohormones, and we're constantly in this state because even though there are no saber-toothed tigers, we have bills and work and, and this and that. And we're just, especially in New York, I think we're literally all hanging in, in this sympathetic state. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> totally. That's, that is every time I go to New York, you feel... <laughs> you kind of think of it as a, the edginess in New York. Exactly. And, you know, pros and cons to that. There's something to be said about, you know, having this revved up adrenaline. Oh, yeah. Rush I, and I love it. I love, I love visiting New York for like 48 hours and I come back and I feel buzzed. But, like, but it's the living there that you're describing, which I think would just, I can't totally imagine. I can understand that. It's really tough. I often give a lot of thought to what it's like living here. And I'll, I'll get to that perhaps, but just to finish up with the parasympathetic. Yeah. So it's the kind of what Benson calls the relaxation response. So you have the fight or flight sympathetic response, and then you have the parasympathetic response where your body is in a relaxed state, which is obviously more adaptive. Mm -hmm. And it's important to be able to switch between states. And I can't imagine people who don't consciously do that so via meditation or something. It's just literally this constant state of fight or flight, if you can imagine that. 
Definitely. And I'm obviously completely agree with you. But as soon as you finish describing this, I'm curious how many people you see through your clinical work where you see this kind of fight or flight epidemic of the sympathetic nervous system just always cranking and you know how you deal with that. So unfortunately, the bad news is that I see it all the time. The good news is that they're sitting in front of me in my office, which means they're in at least some sort of contemplation stage in terms of what they're willing to invest by way of time and energy and commitment to their own mind-body wellness. I wish it sounded so, you know, brilliant, but it's like literally just my clients will come in and just helping them find this awareness that they're in this state all the time. They haven't stopped (laughs) to take a breath. You would think literally that I'm a Nobel laureate. It's the most humbling feeling in the world. And I'm just kind of like, no, you just, this is, uh, you did the right thing by, you know, you reached out. You reached out, you knew something just wasn't um, working. You were surviving, no longer thriving, whatever it is. And you showed up and here we are. So it's extraordinarily humbling from my perspective. (laughs) So so kind of your point here is that once they're in the room, there's already a degree of intention and motivation to deal with it. it. And that makes your job a lot easier, but that people are also really taken by the power of this, what you've been pointing to and describing to us, this relaxation response or this parasympathetic nervous system response. And that's something you can take them into, it sounds like, pretty easily through your modalities of therapy. Is that right? Definitely. You know, and then I integrate a lot of other tools. What I ultimately, it's about helping the patient fill their own toolbox so that they have all that they need, the skills that they need to take outside of my office and help themselves to thrive, to have better quality, to better quality of life. But I find that just that consciousness can do so much. So, and this isn't by way of me denigrating any forms of psychotherapy, but some patients come to me after years and years and years of just talk therapy with little relief. And I'm blown away by what just focusing on the breath could do. Again, it, it's extraordinary for me to watch and it's humbling. I'm just so happy that I'm in the right place at the right time with these patients who have the intention to show up for themselves in some way. Mm. No, and of course, there's a little bit more to it, right? It's a slow and steady process. Yeah. You know, this mind body wellness thing, but at the simplest level, it's an extraordinary thing. What percentage of your clients? or patients, would you say you're introducing them to some of these meditation exercises or techniques that we're talking about? I would actually have to say about 95%. Wow. Of that 95%, what percent would you say are, whether short, mid, or long-term, positively affected by it? I would say mostly all. I think for some, they take to it more quickly than others. I definitely have patients, and this is a whole nother conversation, who I have to be extraordinarily careful because of some past trauma history, you know, and other risk factors for maybe having a contraindicated reaction. But for the most part, I've seen some benefit in some way. I always say, take a mindful breath. The side effect is a more parasympathetic life. <laughs> oh, I love that. I feel like that's my catchphrase. My my patients, if they were here, they'd be like, yep. That's great. I see patients for a whole host of reasons. So it's not that they just come in and say, I'm having trouble breathing, right? Mm -hmm. This is chronic pain patients, patients with quote unquote disordered eating, right? So it's across the board. It's something that can be used. Right. So can you tell us a little bit more about your work studying the brain and how that relates to meditation, your interest in meditation. And then what, for example, has been some of the more impacting information, studies, discoveries in the whole field of neuroplasticity or neuropsychology, or I don't, I don't really know the terminology that you've come across. Yeah. And right now I'm not doing research, although I certainly read a lot. Right. But 
you know, we had done a study through the Osher Institute about mindfulness meditation via the mindfulness-based stress reduction, you know, a la John Kabat-Zinn. Yes. And patients who had mild cognitive impairments. So kind of this monkey in the middle stage uh, between normal aging and an Alzheimer's disease process. And we wondered if perhaps not everyone with MCI, though the majority of people who do... MCI being mild cognitive impairment. Mild cognitive impairment, I'm sorry. Yeah. No problem. Not all will then go ahead and develop into develop Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's disease. Many do, but some don't. And imagine if you can influence the process during that time where perhaps it's not... Alzheimer's is not an inevitability for so many people. Mm. And it was just a really small pilot study, low sample size small and they did find some hippocampal thickening, which is, of course, the place in the brain active in memory. Right. Um, so they did functional MRI and they did find after this eight week, two hour weekly session that they noticed this hippocampal thickening. And again, it was more of a feasibility study and a pilot study. Yeah than anything that I would say is, oh, this is the gospel. This is, you know, and actually in no one study can you actually say this, but it just opened my eyes in a way that they hadn't been before. And it was incredible to be able to work with patients on that study. And they all just responded so well. While there were no changes in their neuropsychological functioning, unfortunately, again, low sample size, there was this increased clarity that clearly came across after the study. So while the numbers didn't change, the patients themselves actually felt like they might have or did for whatever that's worth. (laughs) They felt that they were more functional and clearer, right? And we know a lot about perception is so much of our experience. So while their memory scores didn't necessarily change, their own sense of them did. Interesting. Which is very interesting. Yeah. So as someone who has studied the brain, what, this is kind of maybe a little off the topic, but I'm, I'm just curious, what's the most surprising thing you've learned about the human brain? That's a big question. Yeah, no, that is a big question. I would say not surprising, but most, again, humbling, <laughs> that's a big word here, mm, and yeah. is that, and I'm, I'm not sure if this answers your question, but it always comes to mind, that we're just brain studying brain as much as we want to say we've come so far and this and that, we're literally just brains studying other brains. That's what's going on. And so It's a very evocative image, by the way. <laughs> exactly. <sighs> exactly. But it's like when we crack, quote, brain code or we come across something, it's like literally just another brain computing that. And I think that's why we just need to realize that a lot of this is slow and steady. And this is a burgeoning field, neuroscience. And also as neuroscience is applied to meditation is so new, but you know, there are so many good studies out there talking about all kinds of results that would indicate that meditation can really not only be a game changer, but a brain changer. Yeah. But otherwise, most surprising is that there's always more. I think that's my point of it, is that there's Mm -hmm. always more. Mm -hmm. There's always so much more. We don't even know the half of it or the quarter of it. You know, there's so much in this shiny mound of being that is so mysterious. Yeah. It's eerie, but and also exciting at the same time. That's awesome. It's like a frontier. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's what it feels like. And I always find it really interesting talking about the current intersection of science and contemplative practice and how there's this moment in culture where these things are like conjoining in a way they never have historically starting, you know, with people like Herbert Benson in the seventies and maybe a little bit before, but now it's kind of cascaded into this real, as you described it, a burgeoning interest in these ancient practices. And I, I always find that I'm just grateful that we're living in a time where something that's been practiced for 3,000 years consistently, mostly in the monastery and the cloisters and whatnot, is now coming out, it's in full view, it's in mainstream, and now we're applying the scientific method to it to find out a whole another order of 
information and context for understanding the practice that we really didn't have before at all. We knew the benefits and we, you know, masters or saints would say, hey, you got to meditate for X, Y, and Z reasons or, and monks would extol the benefits. But this, this is this amazing moment. And that's partly why I love talking about it. And I, I enjoy talking with someone like you because you really straddle that intersection in a very interesting way. Thank you. No, it's such an extraordinary time. I, like you said, it's such a blessing to, to be doing this work, you know, at this time, I'm like a kid in a candy store reading these studies, yeah. um, thinking about them, you know, write a, a lot about them. There is just no way <laughs> that the science couldn't be there. I mean, the subjective experience is so profound and we've seen over time, the benefit, the feeling of regulation that it has to show, you know, I think there are some limitations now still to the study. We're not exactly sure the mechanisms of action. Again, someone who's really immersed in real neuroscientific research right now can speak much more to that. But mm. I just feel like I'm not surprised. The whole idea of neuroplasticity is a game changer. I like to say that that's my word, I guess, game changer. But mm. <laughs> I like to say that practice makes neuroplastic really mm. consistent practice of meditation over time, right? So just like if you're playing the piano over and over and practicing over time, that will strengthen and support brain networks involved with playing music. So in the same vein, practicing meditation or, you know, mindfulness, um, whatever it is over time can make the brain and then us more efficient regulators, right? right? So we can then have this real neurologically supported predilection for pausing to respond to our world instead of mindlessly reacting. Right. That's fantastic. Well said. Thank you. I would be curious to learn also for you personally, in addition to say the pain relief that you experience from meditation, what other personal benefits or from your own practice, what other experiences compelled you really to keep going so that you just we're convinced that this is really important for me to do. You know, I think the number one thing is just the compassion that I applied to myself could always be applied to another person. But actually, I think just interpersonally, the way we interact with people, right? And yeah. just the sensitivity, but also the ability to stop and take that moment of pause mm -hmm. before reacting, whether with a spouse or someone you're dating or even just coworkers or whoever it is, that one moment of pause can make or break certain relationships or the quality of them. Yeah, Taking that time to just, okay, what's really going on? Checking in with oneself and not projecting. I mean, this is such a complex topic. I'm trying to just kind of reduce it into a sentence, but not projecting what's really going on inside you onto that other person necessarily right away. <laughs> Taking that second to check in with yourself. And then I always like to say, then we get to respond instead of react. Yeah. We're all just human beings fighting our own hard battles and trying to thrive in this world. And instead of just bumping into one another, we could really just be mindful of ourselves. We could be mindful of, of one another. And it just, like I said, not only does it make or break relationships, but the quality, it's about the quality of relationships that I think for me is most enticing. Yeah. I have a couple of responses to that. One is I just appreciate in how you're talking about this, the degree to which the word mindfulness can, doesn't necessarily, but can so dramatically obscure or betray the profundity of the practice. Because what you, you just described in terms of the self-awareness and the quality and depth of self-awareness where before reacting, you become aware of your initial response. And the way I like to think about it is that the moment you can become aware of your initial response you're immediately objectifying that. And not, in a, not in a negative sense. You're, it's like the first step in deconstructing it is becoming aware of it. You can't deconstruct something in yourself unless you just, you have to see, you know, you have to become awake to it. When you described 
that pause and then you describe what you meant by that pause. It's in fact, from my own experience, that's like a very subtle and powerful practice. That's a yogic practice, really. And to be able to, to do that consistently, and then, as you said, not project onto the world around you, into your relationships, onto other people, onto other events, but always be screening and evaluating your initial interpretations and your initial impressions and your initial reactions. That is very deep work, but to my mind, it's the essence of what mindfulness is really about. And when someone can really start to become grounded in that, like you were saying and alluding to, so many of the stressors that usually just drive us bonkers, you just, you know, you have a moment and you start to see it and you're like, oh, there's an automatic nature to this that I don't have to react to. It's It's almost mechanical. And I think like the Buddhists call it like, the, you know, you start to understand the causes and conditions within you. You start to understand there's this whole, you know, mechanism at work all the time. And then mindfulness helps you just step out of that, even a fraction like you described it. But that fraction is like worlds are, they're born or they perish in that moment. Wow. Thank you for that. This is why I love this podcast because just saying something just generates a response like that. And I agree with you. And I know awesome. you talked about on the, you know, the podcast before you've mentioned, I forgot who it was, I'm sorry, who you were speaking with, but you talked about Victor Frankl, who is just such a, a hero of mine. The idea of right this quote between stimulus and response, there is a space. That yes. is the quote that I carry with me. There's that space. Base. That's yes. you said so, so subtle, a fraction of a second. I tell my patients if you, they want results right away. And I say, it's about consistency Yeah, and trusting that if you practice for hours, even if practicing for hours gives you a second, you are better off for it. Your yeah. quality of life is better off for it. Totally. It's all about that moment, really. Absolutely. That makes sense, right? Yeah, it makes 100% and sense. And I also wanted to say that for me also as a psychotherapist, I, you know, I also use cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's such a good complement. Mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy, I've found, is such a good complement. Because when you, like you said, you're awakened to what you're thinking and your yeah. patterns, then either a lot of times with my clients, we'll just do nothing with them. We'll just kind of decenter and see them without judgment, which has its time and place. But sometimes you actually want to bring these patterns to the forefront. For me, at least as a therapist, you know, and that's part of, I love the clinical art is realizing, okay, when to utilize this other modality to then deconstruct and use this thought, not just as a process, I'm having a thought, but actually engage in its content to parse it out. Yeah. Mindfulness, I've found, is an extraordinary way for my clients to get in there and find those patterns, that narrative, that core narrative that's been holding them back. And sometimes we'll sit and just, this is a narrative. This is a thought, compassion, non-judgment. And sometimes we'll actually... Uh, go in there and treat this thought like a testable hypothesis and just take it apart and restructure the thought. So I find that mindfulness is such a good complement to the work that I do in that vein. Absolutely. Sounds like it. Now, so for everyone who's listening, if you could, Jen, define, you called it, is it mindfulness-based cognitive therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy? Remind us what you referred to in the beginning and then if you could just simply define that for us. Sure. So when I said cognitive behavioral therapy is a theory developed by Aaron Beck based on the idea that our thoughts impact our feelings Mm -hmm. and our feelings impact upon our emotions, behaviors, whatnot. And that if we treated our thoughts as testable hypotheses, not always taking our you know mind at face value and being able to understand that a lot of what we think is based on a framework that we've learned or watched or seen yeah. and not necessarily in our best interest. So 
seeing the world through a certain lens isn't, it might seem like this is always how it has to be. And the thoughts generated from that feel really real. But a lot of times we're seeing them through this skewed lens of the frameworks that we all come to have. Mm. And so if we can tap into that and test them and restructure, then we'll have different feelings. And when we have different feelings, we certainly behave differently. We all have these embedded core beliefs that hold us back that could be then dictate literally how we're living and, and yeah. our becomes this vicious cycle of our thoughts and our feelings and our behaviors. So that's what I mean. About that's, that. that's great. That's fantastic. And, and it's very clear why and how, as you were saying, mindfulness would help create almost like the wide open space where you can begin to get in there and test, as you said, the hypothesis of that thought. Definitely. And I don't know if I said that right, but no, what, no, no, it was yeah. perfect. There is something called mindfulness based cognitive therapy as a specific therapeutic treatment. And that, again, mm-hmm. is just designed with this in mind. Got but it. I'm just merely talking about just the two as just loose complements to one another. Yeah. Got it. I know. Well, there's three things. One, I, there's a great book by the UK personality. Her name is Ruby Wax. And it's called Sane New World. And she she's just stand-up comedian. But she also has struggled with, she's had mental health issues for a while. And she just, at a certain point, was like, well, I, you know, I just don't want to live in secret around this. And she did a TED Talk about it, but started to really feel like, all right, how can I get control over this? And she went and got a master's at Oxford University in the UK in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Oh my goodness. Therapy. Yeah, and she wrote this book about it. And she's just, a lot of the book is she's just lampooning her own mind. And she's also just laying out the predicament of mental illness and in a lot of ways trying to destigmatize it. I mean, that's a lot of what her work does, using comedy and getting people to laugh. Mm. And I think it's an important book because she's so open about it all, but she, she's a very inspired character because she obviously took profound initiative to understand it herself. And when we went and saw her here in Cambridge, when she her stand-up show was here in town, and at the end of her stand-up show, she led us in a guided meditation. It was wow. fantastic. I, and yeah, you don't think about that at the end of a comedy show, but... <laughs> But it was, you know, it was very profound and obviously born out of her own experience. So, I, I it, love that. Yeah, you'd love her. She's she's a big personality. I, I wrote that down. I'm going to be purchasing that book. I'm super excited. Yeah, check her out. And then the other thing was Andy Kelly, the Boston Buddha, was right. The, so he he was the interview. I was trying to remember who it was. Just circling back to your description there, which was really helpful about cognitive based therapy. It reminded me of an experience I had once. This was in the period of time when I was living in that ashram and I was struggling with something and I was just going like, I'd been struggling with it for a while, like weeks, if not months. And, you know, I'd come to learn later for most of my life, but like it was becoming like the, this particular issue was becoming highlighted. And I was just like, you know, I was just grinding, chewing on it. And one day I was sitting in meditation and I, I was just in the grips of it. And I was supposed to be sitting there meditating, you know, relaxing and being at peace. And I, I, I was like a million miles away from that. And I just asked myself in kind of the way that you described, I was like, what does any of this, what I'm thinking about right now, which is a very particular thing, have to do with meditation? What does it have to do with having nothing knowing nothing and and being nobody. And the moment I asked the question, it was like the thing that had been driving me crazy or that I had been driving myself crazy with, however you want to say it, it just, it resolved into a point right in front of me, like my mind's eye. Wow. And it was like, literally, it was like a cloak that came off of me or a suit and like just resolved in front of me. And I was like, oh my God. And then it just dissolved. And I felt just this sort of immediate expansion and release. 
And I just, all this insight flooded in. I, so, I sort of saw very deeply how invested I was in this idea. And so, so deeply that my, I could see that my entire psyche sort of warp and weft around this thing when it became highlighted in my experience. And when I objectified it in this way, which your description of the cognitive based therapy really made me think about when I objectified it, it was just, there was this freedom, but the depth of insight and clarity and just self understanding that emerged as a result. For me, that was like when meditation really, I started to really understand the power of this practice as something in itself transformative. If you engage with it directly. I love that story because it's, it's about, I think, realizing that we create this whole narrative that then we take on as our identity Yeah, and we take so for granted. And then we see, oh, no, it doesn't have to be that way. So just a quick personal story, if you don't mind, just me, um, my grandmother is a survivor of the Holocaust and is she still alive? She's not. She okay. passed. But what an extraordinary inspiration. And awesome. one time during meditation, I realized that I had been holding on to some of her pain and a lot of some of the depression I've experienced was because I thought I had to take the torch and now and be her flame of I'm struggling to find words for this, but I had to carry the torch of yeah. her pain. Yeah. And then I re- I realize I can shed that cloak. That's an identity that doesn't have to be mine. Mm. And I I didn't even realize that I was doing that. Had no idea. And then one time during meditation, though I'm sure it's it's a gradual process that leads to that one time. Yeah, yeah. I I realized, "Oh my goodness, I'm holding so much of my grandmother's pain unconsciously." Yeah. And when I it came into awareness, I was just able to kind of take off that cloak and I felt so liberated. Mm, you know, powerful. That mo- right, that moment again, it's it's hard to talk about and to articulate well, but I can under- I can relate to your experience is what I'm saying. Uh, absolutely. It comes <laughs> completely comes through. Sorry, go, go ahead. No, no, please. No, I think a lot of times we also it's about learning to ask ourselves different questions. Yeah. So a lot of times my clients, I continue to learn this with them, that asking oneself, what is wrong with me, is our go-to question a lot of times. Mm. But that will only lead to pain. That's not a helpful question. But I think mindfulness can help us change our questioning because we can then ask, wait, what am I feeling? What am I thinking? What is what I'm, I'm feeling and what I'm thinking telling me? How can what I'm feeling and thinking help me grow. Yeah. So I noticed in that way as well, it it helps us change, go from the questioning of what's wrong with me to, oh, this is what what I'm feeling. What can this tell me? This is what I'm thinking. How can this help me? How can this help me grow? Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, there are two things. One, questions I feel like, when you ask the right questions, they're like keys, right? They unlock your being. I am convinced of that. And I think from my own experience of that moment, I started to understand that I can ask myself questions that I don't need to answer. They, the, the questions, they work on their own. They work on their own at their own speed, their own pace. It's not often something I can force. I just need to almost pose the questions to myself. And then often the answers disclose themselves. It's it's somewhat out of my control, but that if you ask the right questions in the way that you're talking about, that is such a powerful mode of developing self-knowledge because we think we know who we are, but that's not my experience. My experience is I'm learning all the time who I am based on a lot of factors that have mostly been unconscious and I'm becoming, Mm -hmm. as you said, and this leads to this, the second thing I want to highlight is this point about it's always a process because even in the story I told, I only told you really the last chapter of it. There were several moments leading up to that event which had everything to do with questions. They had to do with 
other people asking me certain questions that stimulated something that sort of maybe temporarily popped something. But then really it was a crescendo. And then it was that question at that moment, which just released it and allowed me to let go for whatever reason at that moment. And because the conditions, but I love what you said that this is a process we're in. All growth, growth, of course. I mean, growth is a process that, that doesn't end. Mm. I love that because for me, I think that resonates because I, I think the practice allows me to actually sit with important questions mm. without wanting to find answers right or need, yeah. I should say. So yes. it's given me that ability to hold multiple questions in mind at one fell swoop. And kind of then living your way into the answer. I think mm-hmm. Rilke has this quote, right? Yes. Have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. That I love that quote. My, it's one of my favorites. It's actually on my fridge. And I've shared it with patients. Because we're going to have questions. Questions are important. The right questions are important. In fact, they're for growth, they're the cornerstone. But it's about being able to sit with the right questions. Mm. And living into the answer, being able to hold that uncertainty, knowing that things will unfold. Hmm. So Jen, where can people learn more about your work? And if people after this interview want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Sure. So they can find me at braincurves.com, which is a community that I just started, a community for women, but all of our supporters to you know, nurture the idea that specialized care and guidance is crucial. So wellness is fostered most and effectively when it's tailored to each of us and all aspects of us, focusing on dealing with mind, brain, body wellness in a stigma-free, non-judgmental environment. So that's just a project that I'm starting up and passionate about it. That's awesome. Who would be the type of people that would benefit from joining your community at Brain Curves? Sure. Anyone, though it's focused on women's wellness, it's not by way of leaving men out. It's just, again, that idea of that we have uniquely feminine neural tracts, yeah. feminine curves, and we have to embrace all of our curves. But um, I have a lot of male support as well, supporters of women in their lives, and just in general, anyone who is just open in that contemplation stage wants to learn more about living a holistic life and finding accurate and accessible information about that. That's great. I think it's awesome to have a community of support that's a niche and that's specific. And I read your post from yesterday about women's reality, you pointed out, and that that's a very particular thing. And you obviously are speaking to that in the community. Yes, no, thank you. That means a lot because it's very close to my heart. We yeah. have this neurohormonal reality that we just can't deny. We need to accept and know how to thrive in face of whatever our individual realities are. Yeah. Again, thank you. So yeah, much for thank you. The support of that. <laughs> Definitely. All right, so I will make sure to post that so people can check it out. Do you have any parting words if you? were to share some tips or advice for anyone who's new to meditation, what Mm -hmm. would you say? I think what I would say is, like I said, practice makes neuroplastic, but also practice makes practice, slow and steady. Five minutes a day can sometimes um, go a longer way than an hour a week. And cumulative, I think the impact is cumulative, just like Mm. with physical exercise. Routines, not extremes. And I think getting into a routine and kind of making it a habit. I know you spoke about habits a lot, which yeah. was which was such a great segment. Again, Thank you. as much as this can become a habit, I know it sounds ironic. Like, let's make this a habit so that we can uncover things that are automatic and you yeah, actual. But it's it is there again. Everything is paradox. But that's what I would say is slow and steady. And there's no right or wrong way. Whatever your practice is that day, it is not to be compared relative to any other time. It is what it is, and tomorrow is is another practice. Is that? That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> sure. 
I tell myself that all the time. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I know. Just speaking out loud to everyone now. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate totally. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jen. I really appreciate it. It's been great to talk and it's just been great to get to know you. Thank you. Likewise, I appreciate all that you do. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed this interview with Dr. Jennifer Wolken. If you want to learn more about Jen's work or connect with her directly, I've included those links in the show notes. You can check out the show notes at www.onemind.com. That's www.onemind.com. Next week, I'm thrilled to be able to share with you my interview with a 95-year-old yogi. I'm not going to tell you his name yet, but I think you're going to be dazzled by his energy, his perspective, and his utterly contagious love for life. Also, did you enjoy the show today? Why not leave me a rating and a review? Let me know how I'm doing. Head on over to iTunes and you can leave us a rating and a review there. Your feedback is super helpful and feel free to suggest future guests. I'd love to hear from you and I read everything you guys write on there. So thank you. And finally, this podcast is sponsored by our free How to Meditate mini course. Learn meditation in five easy lessons. Just visit aboutmeditation.com. That's aboutmeditation.com. And I like to end each episode with a quote. And today, we've got one from the French Buddhist monk and former molecular geneticist, and in parentheses, a man often considered one of the happiest men alive, End parentheses, Matthew Ricard, and he says, Meditation is not just blissing out under a mango tree. It completely changes your brain and therefore changes what you are.